Chapter Seven of the Four Million. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Four Million by O. Henry. Chapter Seven. The Coming Out of Maggie. Every Saturday night, the Cloverleaf Social Club gave a hop in the hall of the Give and Take Athletic Association on the East Side. In order to attend one of these dances, you must be a member of the Give and Take, or if you belong to the division that starts off with the right foot in waltzing, you must work in the Rheingold's paper box factory. Still, any Cloverleaf was privileged to escort or be escorted by an outsider to a single dance but mostly each give-and-take brought the paper-box girl that he affected and few strangers could boast of having shaken a foot at the regular hops maggie toole on account of her dull eyes broad mouth and left-handed style of footwork in the two-step went to the dances with anna mccarty and her fella anna and maggie worked side by side in the factory and were the greatest chums ever so anna always made jimmy burns take her by maggie's house every saturday night so that her friend could go to the dance with them the give-and-take athletic association lived up to its name the hall of the association in orchard street was fitted out with muscle-making inventions with the fibers thus builded up the members were wont to engage the police and rival social and athletic organizations in joyous combat between these more serious occupations the saturday night hop with the paper box factory girls came as a refining influence and as an efficient screen for sometimes the tip went round if you were among the elect that tiptoed up the dark back stairway you might see as neat and satisfying a little welterweight affair to a finish as ever happened inside the ropes on saturday's rheingold's paper box factory closed at 3 p.m. on one such afternoon Anna and Maggie walked homeward together at Maggie's door Anna said as usual be ready at seven sharp mag and Jimmy and me'll come by for you but what was this instead of the customary humble and grateful thanks from the non escorted one there was to be perceived a high poised head a prideful dimpling at the corners of a broad mouth and almost a sparkle in a dull brown eye thanks anna said maggie but you and jimmy needn't bother tonight i've a gentleman friend that's coming round to escort me to the hop the comely anna pounced upon her friend shook her chided and beseeched her maggie tool catch a fellow plain dear loyal unattractive maggie so sweet as a chum so unsought for a two-step or a moonlit bench in the little park how was it when did it happen who was it you'll see tonight said maggie flushed with the wine of the first grapes she had gathered in cupid's vineyard he's swell all right he's two inches taller than jimmy and an up-to-date dresser i'll introduce him anna just as soon as we get to the hall anna and jimmy were among the first clover leaves to arrive that evening anna's eyes were brightly fixed upon the door of the hall to catch the first glimpse of her friend's catch at eight-thirty miss toole swept into the hall with her escort quickly her triumphant eye discovered her chum under the wing of her faithful jimmy 
oh gee cried anna mag ain't me to hit oh no swell feller well i guess style look at em go as far as you like said jimmy with sandpaper in his voice cop him out if you want him these new guys always win out with a push don't mind me he don't squeeze all the limes i guess huh shut up jimmy you know what i mean i'm glad for mag first fella she's ever had oh here they come across the floor maggie sailed like a coquettish yacht convoyed by a stately cruiser and truly her companion justified the encomiums of the faithful chum he stood two inches taller than the average give-and-take athlete his dark hair curled his eyes and his teeth flashed whenever he bestowed his frequent smiles the young men of the cloverleaf club pinned not their faith to the graces of person as much as they did to its prowess its achievements in hand-to-hand -hand conflicts and its preservation from the legal duress that constantly menaced it the members of the association who would bind a paper-box maiden to his conquering chariot scorned to employ beau brummel airs they were not considered honorable methods of warfare the swelling biceps the coat straining at its buttons over the chest the air of conscious conviction of the supereminence of the male in the cosmogony of creation even a calm display of bow-legs as subduing and enchanting agents in the gentle tourneys of cupid these were the approved arms and ammunition of the cloverleaf gallants they viewed then genuflections and alluring poses of this visitor with their chins at a new angle a friend of mine mr terry o'sullivan was maggie's formula of introduction she led him around the room presenting him to each new arriving cloverleaf almost was she pretty now with a unique luminosity in her eyes that comes to a girl with her first suitor and a kitten with its first mouse maggie tools got a fella at last was the word that went round among the paper-box girls pipe mag's floor-walker thus the give-and-takes expressed their indifferent contempt usually at the weekly hops maggie kept a spot on the wall warm with her back she felt and showed so much gratitude whenever a self-sacrificing partner invited her to dance that his pleasure was cheapened and diminished she had even grown used to noticing anna joggle the reluctant jimmy with her elbow as a signal for him to invite her chum to walk over his feet through a two-step but tonight the pumpkin had turned to a coach and six terry o'sullivan was a victorious prince charming and maggie toole winged her first butterfly flight and though our tropes of fairyland be mixed with those of entomology they shall not spill one drop of ambrosia from the rose-crowned melody of maggie's one perfect night the girls beseeched her for introductions to her feller the cloverleaf young men after two years of blindness suddenly perceived charms in miss toole they flexed their compelling muscles before her and bespoke her for the dance and thus she scored but to terry o'sullivan the honors of the evening fell thick and fast he shook his curls he smiled and went easily through the seven motions for acquiring grace in your own room before an open window ten minutes each day he danced like a fawn he introduced manner and style and atmosphere his words came trippingly upon his tongue and he waltzed twice in succession with a paper-box girl that dempsey donovan brought dempsey was the leader of the association he wore a dress suit and could chin the bar twice with one hand he was one of big michael sullivan's lieutenants 
and was never troubled by trouble. No cop dared to arrest him. Whenever he broke a pushcart's man's head, or shot a member of the Heinrich B. Sweeney Outing Literary Association in the kneecap, an officer would drop around and say, The captain would like to see you a few minutes round the office. When you have time, Dempsey, me boy. But there would be sundry gentlemen there with large gold fob chains and black cigars, and somebody would tell a funny story, and then Dempsey would go back and work half an hour with the six-pound dumbbells. So, doing a tightrope act on a wire stretched across Niagara was a safe Terpsichorean performance compared with waltzing twice with Dempsey Donovan's paper box girl. At ten o'clock, the jolly round face of Big Michael Sullivan shone at the door for five minutes upon the scene. He always looked in for five minutes, smiled at the girls, and handed out real perfectos to the delighted boys. Dempsey Donovan was at his elbow instantly talking rapidly. Big Mike looked carefully at the dancers, smiled, shook his head, and departed. The music stopped. The dancers scattered to the chairs along the walls. Terry O'Sullivan, with his entrancing bow, relinquished a pretty girl in blue to her partner and started back to find Maggie. Dempsey intercepted him in the middle of the floor. Some fine instinct that Rome must have bequeathed to us caused nearly everyone to turn and look at them. There was a subtle feeling that two gladiators had met in the arena. Two or three given takes with tight coat sleeves drew nearer. One moment, Mr. O'Sullivan, said Dempsey. I hope you're enjoying yourself. Where did you say you live? The two gladiators were well matched. Dempsey had perhaps ten pounds of weight to give away. The O'Sullivan had breath with quickness. Dempsey had a glacial eye, a dominating slit of a mouth, an indestructible jaw, a complexion like a bell's, and the coolness of a champion. The visitor showed more fire in his contempt and less control over his conspicuous sneer. They were enemies by the law written when the rocks were molten. They were each too splendid, too mighty, too incomparable to divide preeminence one only must survive i live on grand said o'sullivan insolently and no trouble to find me at home where do you live dempsey ignored the question you say your name's o'sullivan he went on well big mike says he never saw you before lots of things he never saw said the favorite of the hop as a rule went on dempsey huskily sweet o'sullivan's in this district know one another you escorted one of our lady members here, and we want a chance to make good. If you've got a family tree, let's see a few historical O'Sullivan buds come out of it. Or do you want us to dig it out of you by the roots? Suppose you mind your own business, suggested O'Sullivan blandly. Dempsey's eye brightened. He held up an inspired forefinger as though a brilliant idea had struck him. I've got it now, he said cordially. It was just a little mistake. You ain't no O'Sullivan. You're a ring-tailed monkey. Excuse us for not recognizing you at first. O'Sullivan's eye flashed. He made a quick movement, but Andy Gogan was ready and caught his arm. Dempsey nodded at Andy and William McMahon, the secretary of the club, and walked rapidly toward a door at the rear of the hall. Two other members of the give-and-take association swiftly joined the little group. Terry O'Sullivan was now in the hands of the Board of Rules and Social Referees. They spoke to him briefly and softly, 
and conducted him out through the same door at the rear. This movement on the part of the Cloverleaf members requires a word of elucidation. Back of the association hall was a smaller room rented by the club. In this room, personal difficulties that arose on the ballroom floor were settled, man to man, with the weapons of nature, under the supervision of the board. No lady could say that she had witnessed a fight at the Cloverleaf Hop in several years. Its gentlemen members guaranteed that. So easily and smoothly had Dempsey and the board done their preliminary work that many in the hall had not noticed the checking of the fascinating O'Sullivan's social triumph. Among these was Maggie. She looked about for her escort. Smoke up, said Rose Cassidy. Wasn't you on? Demp's Donovan picked the scrap with your Lizzie boy, and they waltzed out to the slaughter room with him. How's my hair look done up this way, Mag? Maggie laid a hand on the bosom of her cheesecloth waist. Gone to fight with Dempsey, she said breathlessly. They've got to be stopped. Dempsey Donovan can't fight him. Why, he'll, he'll kill him. Oh, what do you care, said Rosa. Don't some of them fight every hop? But Maggie was off, darting her zigzag way through the maze of dancers. She burst through the rear door into the dark hall and then threw her solid shoulder against the door of the room of single combat. It gave way, and in the instant that she entered, her eye caught the scene. The board, standing about with open watches. Dempsey Donovan, in his shirt-sleeves, dancing light-footed, with the wary grace of the modern pugilist, within easy reach of his adversary. Terry O'Sullivan, standing with arms folded, and a murderous look in his dark eyes. And without slacking the speed of her entrance, she leaped forward with a scream, leaped in time to catch and hang upon the arm of O'Sullivan, that was suddenly uplifted, and to whisk from it the long, bright stiletto that he had drawn from his bosom. The knife fell and rang upon the floor. Cold steel, drawn in the rooms of the give-and-take association? Such a thing had never happened before. Everyone stood motionless for a minute. Andy Gogan kicked the stiletto with the toe of his shoe curiously, like an antiquarian who has come upon some ancient weapon unknown to his learning. And then O'Sullivan hissed something unintelligible between his teeth. Dempsey and the board exchanged looks, and then Dempsey looked at O'Sullivan without anger, as one looks at a stray dog, and nodded his head in the direction of the door. The back stairs, Giuseppe, he said briefly. Somebody'll pitch your hat down after you. Maggie walked up to Dempsey Donovan. There was a brilliant spot of red in her cheeks, down which slow tears were running. But she looked at him bravely in the eye. I knew it, Dempsey, she said as her eyes grew dull even in her tears. I knew he was a guinea. His name's Tony Spinelli. I hurried in when they told me you and him was scrappin'. Them guineas always carry knives, but you don't understand, Dempsey. I never had a fella in my life. I got tired of comin' with Anna and Jimmy every night, so I fixed it with him to call himself O'Sullivan and brought him along. I knew there'd be nothin' doin' for him if he came as a dago. I guess I'll resign from the club now. Dempsey turned to Annie Gogan. Chuck that cheese slicer out the window, he said, and tell him inside that Mr. O'Sullivan has had a telephone message to go down to Tammany Hall. And then he turned back to Maggie. Say, Mag, he said, I'll see you home. And how about next Saturday night? Will you come to the hop with me if I call around for you? It was remarkable 
how quickly Maggie's eyes could change from dull to a shining brown. With you, Dempsey? she stammered. Say, will a duck swim? End of chapter 7